Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And this is No Limits, a Mitch Rab podcast. So how you doing, Mike? Doing all right. We're down to two weeks of school left, which is kind of crazy to imagine. You know, it's mid-May and we're already wrapping up the school year, but that's how things go right now, I guess. Yeah, this quarantine has really gone by pretty fast. Um, fast, but but slow, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, you know what's been exciting, though? Uh, we got our Twitter game going, at Mitch Rap Pod. We've had a lot of awesome people. There's a complete world of thriller fans out there. It humbles me. I wouldn't even consider myself a super fan looking at some of them. They are just way beyond. So we've had some great people. Uh, really awesome shout out to a couple of the accounts that have followed us. At Atria Mystery Bus the publisher of a lot of thriller novels, including our very own Kyle Mills. They've been really great retweeting and mentioning a lot of our stuff. And our first follower, at Stan R. Mitchell. He was our first follower, and he's an author of his own. So that's pretty awesome. We'll have to check him out. We have a lot of aspiring authors we found on Twitter. And our other first two follows were at Deke Ludke, D-E-E-K, L-U-E-D-T-K-E, and Kashif, 1307, at K-A-S-H-I-F, 1307. Thanks for being our first couple of followers. And they're also Mitch Rap Ambassadors, a cool program we might want to highlight in the future as we bring some fans onto the show. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad to see that we have a little bit of a social media presence. We're happy that people are listening to us, and we're excited to be, be bringing some content to you guys during this Although, time. Although, Chris... I've I've kept the secret from you. Yes. What's your secret? We have a pretty awesome follower on Twitter. Who's the that? The man himself, Kyle Mills, at Kyle Mills author. Really? Yeah. Wow. I didn't, I didn't tell you that came through recently, but um, you know, I got all excited. I thought I'd save it for live on the show to uh, That's exciting. That yeah. Oh, I can't believe you kept that from me. Nice. Seem, seems like an awesome guy, constantly engaging with fans and other authors and supporting them and shouting them out. So really, really looks like a great guy online, just uh, doing good things. Yeah, well, we're, we're two huge fans. We're, we're proud that he's still writing these books. Can't Looking forward to his next one. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to have to do something special for Total Power come uh, September and leading up to it in August. Maybe we'll read Lethal Agent and, you know, look forward to what we're anticipating for Total Power. So it's going to be a pretty good late summer into the fall transition for, uh, for readers. Nice. So, Mike, you want to tell us what we're going to be covering today? Sure. We are going to be moving on in term limits. We are calling it part two. We are going to discuss chapters 14 through the end of chapter 29. And then we'll have one more episode after this, part three, where we finish the book. But for today, we're doing chapter 14 through 29. And um, we mainly want to focus on the the helicopter sequence, which I, I believe we both agree, I, I think, is the our favorite you know scene from the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I, I really think this scene is going to hold up as we even get into future books. It was it was that good. It was riveting. Um, I still think about it a lot. So can't wait to get into the helicopter sequence. But let's get into the content of part two. So we start off chapter 15, uh, where we have the funeral with the funeral procession. And it was also really great to see that O'Rourke was willing to join up with uh, his longtime friend, Senator Olson, and um, walk with him in public, even during this time of heightened security. Yeah, I liked how uh, Olson really, he felt like it was his 
it's his right as a, as a senator to be able to do this. This was, you know, history. People of Congress can walk behind these caissons and he really, you know, stood for something there. I, I, I like that sim symbolism that, that Olson had there. Yeah, we quickly cut, though, to his girlfriend, Liz Scarlatti, who is, I would say, rightfully freaked out. She did not know about this decision that Michael was going to walk in the funeral procession in public next to a leading senator during this time of threat and assassination attempts. But um, she seems to come around and be okay with it, and he explains, but she was really upset to, to not know about that decision. Right. And then the second part of that chapter, we get into the beginnings of the assassins, specifically our blonde hair assassin, who we'll be meeting shortly, gets into setting up this whole scene that's going to be taking place in chapter 17. And the... Can I share a cool fact? Sure. So we have the blonde haired assassin pull into a parking garage for a Safeway, and no one else will find this exciting, but... There were there were a few paragraphs dedicated to the assassin changing his outfit and concealing his identity in the parking lot at 34th Street Northwest and Wisconsin Avenue Northwest. That's right where you used to live. That's the block behind my apartment building for years, and it was really cool. I, I've parked in that parking lot. I've walked through it. There's some hiking trails right behind it that are pretty concealed, and I just imagine looking up and seeing our blonde-haired assassin uh, right there. In changing. This, changing his clothes, concealing identity, uh, just right where I lived, right where I, I shopped every every week. Right. And the reason he is changing is because he's planted a transponder in an ABC van, which he was pretty easy to get into that building. Like, like No security. You know, he just had to have a windbreaker that it was red and had the ABC letters on it. I thought that was interesting. It's going to be a big payoff, though, of what he was doing, tinkering with that ABC news van and why the transponder in the van will play into the helicopter scene. So this is it. Chapter 17, the big one. The president has decided to ignore his advisors, uh, you know, security claims, Jack Warch in particular, who says he doesn't want to go up to Camp David, but, you know, Garrett insists. And so they have to put into a plan to get, get the president from the White House to Camp David. And I like how Vince Flynn describes these helicopters. You have 10 VH3s, which are the main Marine One style helicopters. And then each of these are going to be escorted by four CH-53 helicopters. And those are going to act as like a protective shell around each of the, the helicopters. And so they keep one of them empty and it's not discussed which one the president will, will be on. They're, they're going to wait until the very last minute. And then the Secret Service decides to shut off the media. They, they stop the live stream. And this is an uh, attempt to you know, prevent people from knowing exactly which one the helicopter is on. You know, I'm sure this will be done in time, like normal times, but this is a heightened level of intensity because you know these these assassinations are going on, and so they cut the live stream. They decide at the last minute the president's going to go on helicopter three, but you know, based on the last chapter, our assassins were able to put that transponder in the ABC van, turn that on, and so they're able to know which helicopter they're in. And now we really get to see what the assassins have been going for. And, and this is just awesome how this plays out. So we see an old man and he's in communication with the assassins. They have a pre-arranged code using numbers on a keypad and they're transmitting messages about which helicopter the president's on now that they've activated the ABC news van and the, the feed goes live. Well, the old man sitting up in Arlington national cemetery, by the way, did you notice he's sitting at the Arlington house, which was Robert E. Lee's house, 
which has a really great view up on the hill of the cemetery next to a tree in front of the house. And it made me wonder why Vince Flynn, he didn't include this little detail. It sounded like he was sitting right at a very important place that too many tourists don't know about. Pierre L'Enfant's grave. Mm, L'Enfant. Yeah, L'Enfant, the architect who designed the layout of Washington, D.C., and why we have the uh, grid pattern with these wide sweeping diagonal streets creating a grid of circles and um, traffic circles and, and squares throughout the city is due to L'Enfant's plan. And he's buried right there where the assassin, or excuse me, the old man working with the assassins is typing into a keypad. So he alerts his team that the president is going to be on helicopter three. He's, he tells them when helicopter three is taking off from the South Lawn. And it's at this point where all the action happens. Right. So the night before, the assassins have been able to place into the newspaper stands, Washington Post newspaper stands, these um, radars, and all in the hopes of using them as a trap. So the president gets on helicopter three. It takes off. They wait until it gets just over its its route it's going, and he's the old man is in a position where he can see where the helicopter is going, and he can activate one of these radars. And these radars then, you know, cause commotion in the cockpits because they think they're being targeted for you know a, a missile. And using strategically placed radars throughout the city, and, and being in in his you know vantage point, he's able to force the helicopter to go in the direction that they want to, and they they kind of they probably know which direction they would probably go based on, you know, their training. They, they know they're, they're these types of people. They know which way they're trained to go. And so by using both that knowledge and placing these things throughout the city, they're able to force them to a location where the night before the assassins have put this fake uh, missile launcher. So the geography teacher in me uh, needed to make a map of this. I needed a visual and it's pretty cool. We'll post in the show notes for you to find a map of where these radars were placed. So there's one transponder at Constitution and 14th Street. After banking uh, hard north over Lafayette Park, there's another transponder at Rhode Island Avenue and Massachusetts, which is causing the helicopter pilot again to rethink the route and go into emergency protocols. But as they fly towards Arlington, which would be to the west and southwest of DC, two more air missile response indicators go off for the pilots and they default to a security protocol, which I often see them practicing. So every time I go to work, you routinely see low altitude helicopters right over the Potomac. So these assassins knew they could force the pilots into these protocols and they would have to take a flight path in the Potomac River Valley that runs between Virginia and Washington. It's then about a mile or two north of DC up the river that they get to chain bridge. And we remember our blonde haired assassin had planted a device. We really weren't sure what it was, but right as the four helicopters protecting Marine One approach the chain bridge, flares go off. The flares create the smoke, uh, smoke screen, the indicators in the cockpit are going wild. And so the front helicopter that's supposed to be the main one to take a missile for Marine One breaks rank flies left out of formation and leaves Marine One a sitting duck above the Potomac River. It seems that was the most vulnerable the president was at during this whole sequence. They say yeah. over and over, the assassins could have right there with a Stinger missile used a surface air missile and, and hit Marine One. Yeah, and that's that's part of their, 
you know, they're going to use that to demand more things later on. But I wanted to ask you about that. To reason this, he argues that the pilots have much more training in terms of missile aversion hours versus, you know, this flying protection hours. But do you think that, I don't think that that would actually happen. What would, I mean, I, I'm not a pilot. I, I don't know, but I feel like if you're in a situation where you're protecting the president and you're flying that helicopter, you're going to, you, that's your sole, sole purpose. You're going to take that hit. I agree. I, I was wondering why he explored that for a few paragraphs. And I think though, it makes sense. After all, the presidential detail and Jack Warsh were advising against this mission. And Stu Garrett kept telling the president, you need to be seen in the media going out in public. The meeting has to be at Camp David to show we're not scared of leaving the White House. And so I think by doing that, it showed how stretched thin the detail was, uh, that they were maybe putting pilots that were not as trained on presidential protection, but more like you said, missile aversion. And so maybe it just shows more about the, the decision making by the White House to go with this against the better advice of the Secret Service. And so I think it shows how stretched thin they were. After all, we have 10 different choppers in the air doing the shell game, and each one is surrounded by four escort choppers. And so we're talking a lot of pilots, and the president and his chief of staff still pushed on. So maybe it just goes to show how stretched thin they were by ignoring the advice of the law enforcement. Yeah, it's probably that device. So I still thought it was just an interesting point that he put in there. Sure, sure, yeah. And so we get to the to Camp David, and the president's pretty rattled. You know, he pours himself a really tall glass of vodka. It falls on the ground, crashes, he then pours another one. So, like, obviously this thing really rattled him. But and Stu Garrett's about to be even more rattled because the assassins have left him or have left a message, another message to Special Agent McMahon, where they say, we've killed these four people we were sending a message just so you know we ha- we have the ability to we're in possession of stinger missiles we have the ability to take down marine one we decided not to you know fix the budget so what, what did you think about that and this old man is the one to to leave that that message i think it's interesting how Stu garrett tries to convince the president this is either a, a lie the fbi is spinning to scare you or he even says, why didn't you bring this to us earlier before the flight? And McMahon's like, I wasn't even at my office. This message I didn't even get until, you know, hours later because I was actually doing my job. He goes and meets with other investigators on the ground at Chain Bridge. They're picking up the radio transponders. And so Garrett tries to paint McMahon as not doing his job or hiding things from the president. And McMahon really shows, no, I'm a better man than you. I was doing my work, and that's why I wasn't just checking voicemails. So I think it shows that McMahon in this investigation is doing his due diligence and really wants to get to the bottom of this, even when the White House advisors are trying to spin it against the FBI. It just drives home further that Stu Garrett is not. I, I, I hate the character of Stu Garrett. I feel like, and I really like the scene where you know McMahon goes to Warch and says, you know, you're probably going to be put under the knife for this because you know you're the secret service and Warch is like hell no I'm not taking this and I he stands up to him I thought that it was interesting the way he gets Stu Garrett to back off is this idea of oh I've I know what you've done um I know that you try to blackmail uh a congressman and I am gonna I expose that and it 
brings up an interesting point. Like the Secret Service and any protective detail, they hear things. And I guess they're under, they've probably signed something that they're under, you know, they can't divulge things, but like they hear a lot and they just ignore a lot. So it'd be interesting to, you know, if you had some sort of confessional with Secret Service, like what what's the craziest thing you've heard or, or you know, what can you confirm or, or deny, you know, type thing. But I thought that that was interesting that that was his weapon. We then get a really interesting event in chapter 20 where we finally learn the old man working with the assassins is Seamus, Michael O'Rourke's grandfather who practically raised him. And so we're back in the cabin where the assassin has been planning this whole time and we learn his identity. Scott Coleman, 16 years a SEAL. Uh, Scott Coleman, very dedicated to America and carrying out many missions to support our country's operations overseas. But there was an event. He lost men in Libya, we learn, because there was a leak from Congress. And that leak directly led to intelligence that got his men shot down on this operation in Libya that very few people knew about. And so Seamus is disturbed and partners up with Coleman to help him carry out this mission. And they left Michael in the dark the whole time, even though Michael was friends with Scott and the grandson of Seamus. And now they're finally going to reveal to him what they're doing. Seamus even goes so far to rationalize what they're doing. When talking to Scott, he says, those men sit in their little ivory towers and play their petty games of partisan politics. While people like your parents and Scott's brother are killed while our so-called leaders are spending billions of dollars on weapon systems the military doesn't even want. These clowns ran up the tab, and they're going to stick my grandchildren with the bill? It's wrong. It's immoral. And somebody had to put a stop to it. Good pretty, argument, you think? I don't know. It's pretty intense uh, quote from, from Seamus. And, you know, there's multiple times where it's referenced that Seamus was part of the IRA, although he it's always every time it's met it's referenced it it does state that he he leaves the ira before they start doing car bombs getting you know killing innocent people but it really drives home this point that i feel is an overarching theme of the book and this good versus evil you know how do we deal with avenging what what is the line between these two things and yes he's fighting for a good thing but I don't know. I struggle sometimes with the assassins, you know, modus operandi, but you know, I don't know. You can agree with me or not, but yeah. I guess it brings up the question of, are there really no limits? (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Senator Olson actually earlier talking with Michael, they really are going back and forth on is violence ever justified? Is there ever something that can be solved? Something extreme? Uh, that violence could actually be part of the answer, not the complete answer, but part of the answer to drive change. And I think it's interesting that Vince Flynn is willing to go into that murky territory. You know, we always hear platitudes about violence is never the answer. Kindness will, you know, kindness kills. Kindness will win in the end. But I think Flynn is really asking, are the real practical realities of this country and what drives change to make us the world's greatest superpower and remain that way, do we often need the Scott Coleman's willing to push the boundaries, say there are no limits and do what needs to get done. Right. And I don't think we get a satisfying answer, but what we get is a number of characters that present one side to an extreme and we'll see who wins in the end. 
who are the heroes of the book. Yeah, and I think like you can really tell in the character arc for Michael O'Rourke, you know, in the beginning, he stands for something. And while he does, he said he's not happy, he says, he says he's not happy with their means, but he doesn't necessarily miss these, the fact that these senators are, are dead. Then by the end of the book, we'll see that, you know, Michael is joining the assassins, essentially, you know, his joining with his grandfather and doing some dirty work. Yep. Speaking of dirty work, we also see a new character, Arthur, who has a house out in Maryland. And Nance and Garrett are really relying on him to help handle the situation with the assassins. We learn that Higgins was, Arthur Higgins is his name, was forced out of running special operations in the CIA. He was doing some black operations without approval outside the bounds of the law. And Nance and Garrett are going to team up with him to see if he can help the situation with the assassins. But what they're really looking for is cover to make the president look good through all of this, to find ways to take control and show that the president has control of the situation and the president can maintain stability. Right. And we get this whole idea of Arthur was running the black ops, him and Stansfield. We learn later that him and Stansfield did not have a good relationship and that he, you know, ran operations that are off the books type thing. And, you know, it, it, it has me thinking, isn't a lot of things that we learn in the later books very similar to wh- how Higgins is described to do some of these things? I mean, I guess they don't go into the nitty gritty detail about the specific ops he ran. And I'm guessing that's where he runs astray. But a lot of times Stansfield and, and Kennedy and, and Rapp are running these books without any sort of political oversight. And so it's funny that that is the thing that they choose to say why Higgins is the bad guy and not Stansfield type. Yeah, I mean, looking back on it, we still don't know where Mitch Rapp is at this time in the story. Well, Kennedy is just getting started, it seems. She's still a lower level at this point. But if they have any history with Higgins and these black missions, these dark missions that we're not told about that are outside the bounds of the law, even though he's the he's one of the bad guys and like the evil behind the scenes operators right now, it sounds like he's running the missions that are the kind of missions we'll learn to love with Mitch Rapp later on in the series that we will cheer for. But it's funny right now he's being criticized or pushed out of the CIA for running those style missions. Right. Just to transition, we get a pretty interesting uh, scene at the Pentagon where Kennedy and McMahon go to the Pentagon in order to see some of these files. So that way they can try to find these assassins and, you know, they're stonewalled by the NSA. And eventually after some conversation, they're given the ability to look at some of these, these profiles. Uh, There was one interesting quote that I thought was interesting to talk about. And I believe it's said by the general that they meet there. And he says that the men we recruit to become special forces commandos are a unique breed. They hold, they hold themselves to a very high standard of honor and integrity and despise people who lie or lack character. And someone that who without thought or hesitation gives his life to save the life of a fellow commando. His biggest fear is that he will be wasted. He, he will have wasted his life by not pushing himself hard enough. He despises people who live their lives unjustly. He dislikes politicians and bureaucrats and displays an open animosity towards them. He's a trained uh, in lethal efficient manner and that we train them to do these things. We, tr- we send them out there to kill bad people. And then we expect them when they come back to turn that off and easily you could, you could imagine a situation where someone who's in, in the military, someone, you know, now 
is sent over and then could come back and then could easily, you know, take this into their own hands. I feel like that, that whole description where they talk about special forces people and how we train them and how we're just expecting them to come home and turn it off and live with their family, that, that it's a little scary to think that, you know, any, not, I'm not saying that uh, special forces are going to do this, but you know, you could have someone who just loses their mind. Like, and that description is such a good one of a psychological profile of someone trained this way. And Flynn takes that to, to turn it on its head and say, what happens when someone we train to root out evil sees the parts of American government and society of which there are plenty that propagate that evil. And so I, I just love how the conversation ends with, if you can convince him that a person is bad enough, he will pull the trigger with a clear conscience. It seems like Kennedy was spot on. That describes our assassin. Our team of assassins that are doing this have been trained. They know what they're doing. And if they sense evil, which currently the corruption in Washington is what they're defining as evil and this careerism, they'll pull the trigger with a clear conscience. And that's what we learned is motivating Scott Coleman. So Kennedy, again, she was the winner of last episode. She is spot on with her description that this also, all signs point to this being a U.S. highly trained special operations commander. Yeah, she knew all along who, who this was, and um, she's our girl. <laughs> yeah. That conversation around ethics continues with Senator Olson and O'Rourke and Seamus. So we have the O'Rourkes and a high-profile senator at a restaurant, and they expose, and Olson says, the Camp David agreement, the budget we're putting out there, is a sham. Stu Garrett basically worked his magic and convinced everybody at the at the Camp David summit that this is the best budget we can get. It's go, they're going to go on TV and they're going to say this is a win for America. The assassins want a lower budget, a balanced budget, a lower debt. We achieved it. We're cutting spending. And Senator Olson knew that was just that was baloney. He knew that this bill would actually add to the debt. It would have ridiculous partisan spending. And the O'Rourke's finally convinced Olsen, can you come out with the truth? The assassins will kill you too if you are untruthful and you play Garrett's game. It seems they got him. Olsen is willing to say, the game is up. I'm going to call them out. I'm going to call out the White House and what they're doing. And this is a sham and it's going to tank the budget. But you know what? Maybe that's good to get the conversation started. Yeah. And it's, it's, this is where... You know, we get that conversation where you brought up earlier, the whole idea of violence is not the answer. It's never the answer. What we learn is that politicians only care about the next election. And that's an interesting thing to think about, especially now, you know, are the things that people are doing in society with the coronavirus, is, are they just, do they actually care about, you know, physical safety of people or do they, is it just uh, they care about winning the next election? So That's a, that's a constant tension in, in a lot of the thriller genre is democracy is so great and we uphold it as a way of life. But what happens when democracy with this attitude of comfort leads to our government system becoming so inefficient? It's all about persona and, you know, cult of personality and popularity. And as we see now, Twitter, that that actually subverts democracy and it doesn't make democracy the best thing that it can be. Right anything to get elected and then as soon as they get in there they succumb to the people to the people that paid their way to get there so yeah it seems like senator olson is willing to come clean on this they leave the restaurant and the o'rourke seem to have convinced olson that 
we think the assassins are doing something that could actually push America to a better place. And we get to see the O'Rourke's kind of stunned. Michael is on the sidewalk seeing a bomb by a motorcycle revving up, passing the senator's limo, dropping a bag on top. And right as he's screeching off, the bag explodes, puts a hole in the top of the limo. And O'Rourke is stunned. And Seamus has no idea even though Seamus is working with the assassins, they're caught off guard. And Scott Coleman, too, have no idea where this attack came from. It seemed to be out of the blue. The O'Rourke's and Scott Coleman are really going to have to let the world know this was not us. And the key evidence that Kennedy, of course, gets right is four Secret Service agents protecting the senator were killed in the bomb blast. I believe they mentioned some civilians that were at least injured or maimed and bloody um, on the streets. And that definitely doesn't fit the profile that we've been given of the assassins. Right. And I think so something fishy is going on. Yeah. It's this point where Michael, his character switches. Cause obviously uh, Olsen was a very close, he was very close with him, uh, very close to the family. And now it's sort of personal. And this is where we get a, you know, a defining moment, a transition in the, in the character that is Michael O'Rourke is like, you know, what the hell happened? Someone went too far. He needs to know, you know, who's doing this stuff. He needs assurances that Scott and Seamus didn't target their dear friend. And he obviously knows they didn't. And that convinces him to join them and actually try to expose who was the one responsible for this hit. Right. Turns out there's another hit as well that is also fishy because we have uh, four U.S. Marshals killed on this attack on a house in Fairfax County. And it's Turnquist. And is he in the House or in the Senate? I think he's a congressman. Either way. Um, they assassinate Turnquist in his house. It was still a highly tactical approach to carry out the mission. It's too messy. It's too bloody. And we have dead law enforcement. I think it's interesting that the thing that McMahon picks up on is the, the fact that the U.S. Marshals were never had ability to draw their gun. They were just sitting ducks. And like this is one of the things that he is a clue that we're dealing with someone which will help um, Michael and, and Coleman and, and later on to point that they're not the ones, you know, doing this. It's someone else. It's a different group of military commandos. Yeah. That was a really cool scene to watch how McMahon as a special agent reads the crime scene. Yeah. He really reads the details of the angle of bullets and where the position of the hands and the guns are right. showing that it wasn't a firefight looking for stray bullets that they didn't even have a chance to defend themselves. And so if it was our blonde haired assassin and crew, that wouldn't have been the case. Right. They would not have been injured in these attacks. Good point. Well, we're getting to the end of part two as we start wrapping up a couple of these storylines the O'Rourke's flying out to Georgia and Seamus has an old friend, an ex CIA analyst, Augie, who not to be confused has, has the dirt on Arthur Higgins. Remember Arthur is the one working with Nance and Garrett. Interesting name, Augie. Yeah. But Augie meets with Michael O'Rourke out in Georgia and he tells some information about operations that Arthur was behind in France. And these operations included an assassination. And these files, he believes, are going to prove that Arthur Higgins is the guy. And another link between this 
is that Arthur Higgins was forced out of the CIA and instead Stansfield was promoted. And so this file is going to prove to the O'Rourke's that Arthur is involved in these two recent killings, including O'Rourke's mentor and friend, Senator Olson. And these files are going to give details on Arthur's home and security system, which seems super advanced. Like he is hiding out in rural Maryland. So just a quick, um, we won't go into a full thing. Who do you think won part two? Who are winners? I, I like McMahon. I think Special Agent McMahon and the details we see him operating the crime scenes, uh, collaborating well with other agencies. We see collaboration between the FBI and the CIA. He, he proves that he's a professional right. and he's in the right job. I agree. I think it would be either McMahon or you can make an argument for the assassins. They, um, they had a pretty cool, pretty good go there. But then, you know, it kind of turns when, when we start to get to the second half of the story where it's away from the assassins and more towards, you know, who we think is Arthur Higgins and whoever he's involved with, we'll, we'll find out in the next part. But yeah. yeah. And definitely the winner of action scenes was the helicopter sequence that that scene just blew me away. Still thinking about it. And you know, when I went back and reread it and I wonder if this happens a lot with thrillers, I remembered this awesome, long drawn out, super detailed scene. And it was just two or three pages. Yeah. No, you know, what's so funny. Do you say that? I, yeah. I remember that part. And I'm, as I was rereading that chapter, I'm like, wait, this is the chapter where we're going to get the sequence. And, you know, I read it on a Kindle. And so it says how many pages I have left in the chapter, how many minutes I have left in the chapter. And it's like six minutes left in the chapter. And I'm like, wait, this is all just going to be in, you know, six pages worth of material. I, I thought it was the entire chapter, but no, it wasn't the entire chapter. It was like just the last little bit. The amount, how vivid, the amount of detail in my brain about this one scene, how it's going down. I just, it sticks so well. And I learned so much about all these locations and the, and the um, secret service protection and the flight plans of the helicopters. I was like, this must've been the longest chapter in the book. And it turns out all that action was in a few pages. I must've just sat there when I was done. I must've just sat and just thought about it forever. And in my mind, it was, it was with me yet. It was done in such a, a short amount of text that I, the bang for your buck is amazing. And for, for Vince Flynn to do that in his first novel is awesome. Right. Well, we are going to be finishing term limits. We will do part three, which will be chapter 30 to the very end. We will share our final ratings on the book overall. We'll share our commentary on some of the themes explored in the book. We'll give our zero-sum game of winners and losers. And look forward to our bonus episode coming out as well, where we do a constitutional deep dive into term limits, looking at the history and the current debate around should there be enforced legal term limits for the House and the Senate. And you guys know... Please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. And you can find us find us online at MitchRapPod.com or using the Twitter handle at MitchRapPod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Guys, we, we are just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, 
or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.